2018, the North Korean Economic Exclusion Zone near the Sea of Japan. Park Han-young pulled in his fishing net. After a long day of heavy labor, he hoped his latest efforts would pay off. But when he saw the extent of his catch, he sighed in disappointment. His crew had only managed to trap a handful of seashells, a gull, and one solitary squid. They'd been at sea for weeks, but had little to show for it. There simply weren't enough fish for every crew in the area. And at this rate, no one would meet their quotas. Han Young and his mates looked into the distance. They had to be getting close to Japan's fishing zone, where the waters were teeming with fish. But venturing into another country's zone was against the law. And without GPS, the farther they sailed, the easier it would be to get lost and never make it home. On the other hand, they needed a larger catch or their families in North Korea would starve. The motors sputtered to life and the ship was off, heading east to more plentiful and more dangerous waters. None of them were ever seen again, but their boat was. Months later, it washed ashore in Japan, the latest in a seemingly endless string of North Korean ghost ships. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on the North Korean ghost ships, fishing boats that washed up on the shores of Japan and Russia. Sometimes they were empty, but occasionally they were filled with decaying bodies. Last episode, we examined the many shipwrecks and how, occasionally, survivors were found on board. We also discussed how ghost ship sightings have increased since the 2010s, but nobody knows why. This time, we'll cover some possible explanations for how these ships got lost in the first place and why the wrecks are becoming more frequent. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, 
You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. November 15, 1977, Niigata Prefecture, Japan. 13-year-old Megumi Yokota walked home from badminton practice with a friend. They eventually parted ways to head to their individual houses. But Megumi never made it home. Her parents waited for hours for her to return. But when she didn't, her mother, Saki, drove to Megumi's middle school. She hoped her daughter had simply lost track of time. When she arrived, the school's security guards said that the girls had left hours ago. Megumi should have been home by now. The Yakotas called the police. Officers with dogs retraced Megumi's steps from the school. Mere blocks from her house, her scent abruptly stopped, as if she'd vanished into thin air. They never found any other clues as to what happened to Megumi. There wasn't a body, a ransom note, or any hint of any accident. The officials couldn't determine if she'd been kidnapped, killed, or something else. The Yakotas had no choice but to move on as best they could without receiving any real closure. They weren't alone. Around the same time, roughly 16 other people in Megumi's province abruptly disappeared. Like Megumi, there were no clues left behind that would indicate what could have possibly happened to them. Decades passed, but the Yakotas never gave up hope that they would find out what happened. And eventually, their patience was rewarded. Sixteen years after Megumi's disappearance, in 1993, a North Korean spy named An Myung-jin defected. After South Korea granted him sanctuary, Myung-jin revealed that Megumi had been kidnapped by North Korean agents. But apparently, the abduction wasn't part of the spy's mission. It was an accident. According to a report relayed to Myung-jin, two North Korean agents were standing on the beach near the Yukata's house, awaiting extraction. As night fell, they saw a figure walking along the road toward them. The spies knew they'd been spotted. They had to silence the witness or face potentially disastrous consequences. Instead of killing her, they seized the passerby and took her with them back to North Korea. Megumi was tall for her age, so they didn't realize they'd kidnapped a child. And by the time they did realize, they were already on the boat and headed home. It was too late. They decided to make the best of the impromptu hostage situation. If only they could get Megumi to cooperate, they could use her as an asset. Initially, the teenager cried for her mother and refused to eat, but they told Megumi they'd send her home if she learned fluent Korean. Of course, they had no intention of keeping their promise. Instead, they forced Megumi to teach Japanese culture at a school for North Korean spies to help future agents blend in if assigned to the land of the rising sun. Megumi was such an effective instructor, the DPRK kidnapped more teenage Japanese citizens and others from Thailand and South Korea, all of whom became reluctant teachers to North Korean spies. Over time, their kidnapping techniques became more advanced. North Korean operatives would wrestle victims into small boats, which would then sail into the belly of a much larger ship disguised as a fishing vessel. 
If witnesses spotted the smaller boat pulling away from shore, authorities would still be virtually unable to track it later. Once docked in the DPRK, many of the teenage abductees were held at the same facility. There, a South Korean hostage named Kim Young-nam fell in love with Megumi. They married and had a daughter together. When Megumi's parents learned of their daughter's fate, they advocated for her return and the return of other Japanese abductees. They dedicated their lives to raising money and awareness. But the Japanese government couldn't do much to help. All their evidence came from one defector's testimony. That is, until years later in 2002, when the Japanese president met with North Korea's supreme leader, Kim Jong-il. During their talks, Jong-il confessed to 13 of the 17 reported disappearances, including Megumi's. Jong-il claimed that most of the abductees had died during their confinement. Megumi supposedly took her life in 1994 after spending 17 years in North Korea. Jong-il offered to send Megumi's family her ashes, but he said that ashes were all they should expect. Megumi's parents doubted the legitimacy of Jong-il's story, and they were right to. After the Japanese government performed a DNA test on the remains, they learned the ashes didn't belong to Megumi. But North Korea stuck to their story. As a show of good faith, they offered to allow the five surviving abduction victims to visit Japan for a week on the condition that they return to the DPRK afterward. Japan's president agreed, but the public was outraged. They saw the arrangement as patronizing and cruel. They wanted all the abductees to come home for good. The Japanese government listened. Instead of returning the former captives, they kept them. Naturally, this enraged North Korea. Relations between the two nations collapsed and have never recovered. But there may have been a silver lining. North Korea hasn't kidnapped any Japanese civilians since the Great Famine of 1994 to 1998, at least so far as we know. That said, their abduction and spy training program may have shifted to a new phase. And potential evidence for this new phase may lie in the North Korean ghost ships. Perhaps these empty vessels only appeared to be abandoned fishing boats. And in reality, they transported spies across the Sea of Japan. Trained by abductees to blend in, when they'd wash ashore, they'd step right into their new lives as undercover agents. The only sign of their infiltration would be the wreck left behind. The CEO of Tokyo's abduction research organization, Kazuhiro Araki, championed this explanation. In fact, he believed the DPRK kidnapped hundreds of people more than the reported 17, all to facilitate an expansive espionage operation. In 2018, they found new evidence to back up these speculations. Previously, North Korea had conducted numerous nuclear weapons tests and had flown missiles through Japanese airspace. But that year, the nuclear operations almost entirely stopped. Yearly, in the same time frame, the number of ghost ships increased. Araki guessed that these two events might be related. As he put it, quote, if they're no longer sending nukes, they're sending spies. 
He didn't have any real evidence to back up his conjecture, but he knew where to find it. He just had to travel to Japan's west coast and investigate the ghost ships firsthand. Coming up, Araki and his team search for evidence of North Korean espionage. The worst serial killer, the creepiest cult, the most outrageous con? If you're a true crime fan, you've probably pondered these things. Well, now you can get answers, or at least some passionate opinions. Every week on our podcast, Crime Countdown, my co-host Ash and I rank 10 unsettling crimes centered around a common theme, debating each case with just a hint of humor to lighten the mood. Elena and I may not be experts, and we may not always agree, but we're counting down anyway. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Crime Countdown. Listen free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. More and more North Korean ghost ships washed ashore in the 2010s. In 2018, the numbers hit an all-time high. Meanwhile, the DPRK's nuclear tests all but stopped. Some experts linked the two, claiming the arrival of the ghost ships were evidence of large-scale espionage. Kazuhiro Araki and his team from Tokyo's Abduction Research Organization surveyed several wrecks to find proof of this theory. Their initial searches seemed promising. On one derelict ship, they found a North Korean army hat, a piece of clothing an ordinary fisherman wouldn't have. Most importantly, one of the ships was so small it didn't even have a motor or a deck. The fact that it even sailed at all was a miracle, let alone that it had made it 650 miles from North Korea to Japan. It reminded investigators of the spy boats used to kidnap Japanese people in the 70s and 80s. Perhaps it hadn't sailed hundreds of miles across the sea, just the distance from a larger ship to the shore. In addition, many of the boats weren't rotten or derelict, simply abandoned. But Iraqi couldn't find any definitive evidence that proved the ghost ships were tied to espionage. In fact, if these vessels were part of a spy program, the North Korean government hadn't taken many steps to hide them. For example, the ships often had Korean writing on their hulls. If they were supposed to be incognito, it would theoretically make more sense to disguise them as Russian or Japanese fishing boats, so there'd be no connection to North Korea. In addition, when placed under more scrutiny, the timeline of North Korea's missile program didn't fully support a relationship between fewer nukes and more ghost ships. The largest gap in missile tests occurred between late 2017 and mid-2019. But in May 2019, Pyongyang began launching nukes again. However, the amount of ghost ships washing ashore didn't decrease. In fact, those numbers also kept increasing. 
The explanation that the ships were tied to espionage also didn't account for the many deserted boats and corpses that washed up on Russian shores. North Korea and Russia were allies, and even if they wanted to spy on their ally, North Korean agents could take a train or a plane to Russia. There'd be no need to risk death on the high seas. Which means it's more likely these boats were ordinary fishing boats which regularly went missing. It's apparently so common for ordinary fishing boats to not return from a voyage that the DPRK's port city of Tsangjin has been nicknamed Widow's Town. The boats may not have been tied to espionage, but Iraqi and his team still wondered whether these ships had a purpose besides fishing. If the sailors weren't spies, they had to be desperate to escape North Korea, enough to risk death on open water. So they began to suspect the ghost ships carried defectors. To understand why a person would attempt such a perilous journey, it's helpful to understand North Korea's relationship with other nations. Surprisingly, they're not as cut off from the world as many Americans assume. Thousands of North Koreans live abroad for work or education, even in the United States. But they're only allowed to travel if the government approves. Those who leave the country without permission or who help others escape are arrested. Penalties include forced labor and re-education, which can last anywhere between two to five years minimum, if you make it out alive. According to rumors, prisoners in these camps are regularly tortured or killed. In spite of the risks, over 1,000 people flee the DPRK every year, most often to China, South Korea, or Japan. And occasionally, they're caught en route to their new country. In 2007, the Japanese Coast Guard spotted a poorly equipped ship floating near Fukuara Port. Unable to identify it, they brought it ashore. The four individuals on board claimed to be North Korean refugees. They'd been adrift in the Sea of Japan for six days, awaiting rescue. We don't know the full details of how these people slipped out of North Korea. But we can make some guesses based on what we know about how vigilantly the DPRK polices its borders. Because of North Korea's strict quota system, the military closely monitored every ship that entered or left the port. The sailors couldn't have taken any luggage or supplies that would give any indication they weren't planning to return at the end of their shift. Once at sea, the defectors sailed straight out of North Korean waters and hoped they reached Japan before they ran out of fuel or food. Unfortunately, their boats were often poorly equipped. Most had no GPS and pitiful motors. If the crew got swept off course in a strong current, they might never find their way to safety before starving or dying of thirst. It's likely that most refugees never made it to friendlier ports. Adrift with no rations, no map, and no motor, they died at sea. Perhaps their bodies slipped off the boats, only to wash ashore later. And if the vessel didn't sink, it would eventually crash in Japan or Russia, too late for the hopeful crew that had boarded the ship weeks or months before. Given this information, one might think ghost ship crew members would be thrilled to encounter Russian and Japanese ships along the way, since that would mean they'd be rescued. But historically, this hasn't been the case. 
In fact, the Russian and Japanese Coast Guards catch dozens of drifting fishermen every year, and most of them requested to be sent back to the DPRK. In 2018, a Russian fisherman named Gennady Vorobyov encountered a sinking ship off the coast of Renyika Island. He saved the crew from certain doom and learned they were North Koreans. The men were so weak that Gennady and his wife Natalia reportedly had to carry them up from the beach with a tractor. As the couple nursed the sailors back to health, the Vorobyovs asked them about their journey. The rescued men had originally been a crew of seven. Three died in a typhoon, and the remaining four had been stranded until Gennady had found them. And that's all the sailors would tell the Vorobyovs. They didn't even say how their crewmates had died. Perhaps they were worried about accidentally revealing information about their home country and the potential punishment that could incur. Although they didn't learn anything else from the survivors, the Vorbyovs reported what they knew to authorities. The next day, the Coast Guard took the men away. They presumably ferried them back to the Hermit Kingdom, per the sailors' request. Journalists suggested that they had requested to go home because no one wanted to be the only person to suggest defection. If the group wasn't all on the same page, the turncoat would be branded a traitor. They could be imprisoned, sentenced to hard labor, tortured, or executed. So even if every fisherman wanted to escape, nobody would risk saying so which means it's unlikely the crew intentionally steered their boats out of North Korean waters. They must have been pushed off course accidentally. In addition, defectors didn't have to sneak onto a fishing boat to leave the country. There were much safer routes through China. The U.S. State Department estimates that as many as 300 or 400,000 North Korean expatriates live in China. But it's difficult to get an exact count because they're in hiding. If the Chinese government discovers undocumented North Koreans, they deport them to the Hermit Kingdom. Most North Korean refugees go from China to Vietnam, then Laos, Myanmar, and Thailand before finally ending up in South Korea. It's a roundabout route, but it doesn't break any international travel laws. North Korea is technically a signatory of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which gives all people the right to, quote, be free to leave any country, including their own. The DPRK doesn't uphold this statute within their borders, but they're relatively powerless to prevent immigration abroad. China's deportation of North Korean nationals is more of an unofficial agreement between the countries than an enforced international law. Which means it's unlikely that refugees would take a boat with no GPS, no food, and a turbulent ocean, not with safer alternatives available to them. In other words, the ghost ships might be exactly what they appear to be. Fishing boats that drifted off course. If this is the case, the vessels don't only represent doom for the many crew members dying aboard— Overfishing could spell ecological destruction that would impact everyone living near the Sea of Japan. Coming up, a complex web of deception, robbery, and trespassing. And now, back to the story. 
North Korean ghost ships probably don't carry spies or refugees, but they might be part of another clandestine operation, a state-sponsored poaching program. Beginning around 2013, massive flotillas of North Korean ships drifted into Russian and Japanese waters, illegally fishing. Their national economy likely depended on the practice. North Korea isn't a major player in international trade relations, but there are three exceptions. North Korea is an exporter of cheap labor, minerals, and seafood. Their catches support hundreds of thousands of people, especially in northeastern China. And around 2013, their fishing operations allegedly expanded into other countries' waters. Japanese and Russian fishermen, who'd been at sea for years without encountering a single North Korean boat, suddenly saw them everywhere. To find out why the DPRK had suddenly become so aggressive, an international group of scientists began studying their boat's movements, looking for patterns. Earlier, satellite photos had shown North Korea's vessels in Russian waters. This time, researchers discovered a so-called dark fishing fleet violating North Korea's Exclusive Economic Zone, or EEZ. About 900 illegal boats were fishing in the DPRK's EEZ, and they'd come from China. The research team estimated that in 2017 and 18, North Korea's closest ally poached over 160,000 tons of squid, worth about a half a million dollars, from North Korean waters. China denied the accusation, but the images don't lie. China's fishing fleet might not have been betraying North Korea. The two nations could have made a special arrangement, and the Chinese dark fleets could have been operating with permission from Kim Jong-un. The best evidence for this comes from a France 24 documentary interview with a North Korean national living in China. She sold permits to the Chinese to fish in North Korea's EEZ for the equivalent of over $43,000 apiece. In retaliation for the Hermit Kingdom's nuclear tests, in 2017, the UN forbade them from selling fish internationally. But they may have circumvented those restrictions by selling their rights to catch the fish. In fact, Investigators found that in Chinese border towns, markets were stocked with catches from North Korea. There were only two explanations. China was illegally buying seafood from North Korea, or the fish came from the Chinese sailors operating within North Korea's EEZ. Perhaps Chinese officials felt they had no choice but to circumvent the UN sanctions. Thanks to climate change, it was harder than ever to catch enough seafood to feed everybody. According to ocean scientist Doug Rader, in some parts of the world, edible ocean fish populations are on track to drop by up to 40% by 2050. This could set off a domino effect. As populations decline, fishermen will need to catch a greater percentage of wild stock, meaning there will be fewer surviving fish to reproduce and repopulate. This leads to even smaller populations and, in turn, more overfishing. Some reports have even claimed that the Chinese fleets in North Korean waters harvest squid before their breeding season. After a few seasons of this, 
it could become almost impossible for local fishermen to catch any squid. And even if North Korea's fish weren't dying out, global warming may have pushed them to migrate to cooler waters. As climate change gets worse, it's possible that more nations will turn to poaching to feed their people. Unfortunately, when Chinese fishermen sailed into North Korean waters, their overfishing forced North Korean fishermen to take greater risks to meet their quotas. Perhaps they sailed further and further from North Korean shores, crossing into Japanese or Russian territory. But their rudimentary and outdated boats weren't suited for long-distance traveling, and they were vulnerable to the elements. However, they weren't doomed. Small North Korean fishing boats traveled in fleets for safety. When one broke down, the crew could often wave down other ships for assistance. The fishermen would unload onto a new vessel and leave their derelict behind, with one modification. When the crews abandoned ship, they'd likely take the broken motor with them. Even low-powered and out-of-date motors can be incredibly expensive, especially for low-paid North Korean fishermen. So the crews would undoubtedly salvage them, either to repair or to scrap for parts. This could explain why so many North Korean ghost ships are largely intact, but missing motors. Thankfully, this isn't evidence of a tragedy at sea, but rather that the crew probably survived. This could also explain the sudden disappearance of the ghost ships early in the 2019 coronavirus pandemic. As quarantines began, fishermen may not have traveled in such large fleets. And if the Chinese poachers weren't overfishing the DPRK's EEZ, the North Korean crews might have been able to stay in their own safer home waters. Fewer boats would have broken down and drifted away. Or perhaps the world was too distracted to pay attention to the wrecks. Regardless of the pandemic, the North Korean ghost ships were probably the result of poor preparation and boats being pushed beyond their limits. But ultimately, so long as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea maintains its policy of secrecy, it's hard to know what tragedies happen aboard the ghost ships. Like every other aspect of this mystery, the truth remains buried under a culture of isolation and suspicion. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the North Korean ghost ships, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Hakai Magazine article, How North Korea Built a Fleet of Ghost Ships by Andrea Valentino, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Matthew Teamstra with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Kara Mackerlein and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg 
and Richard Rossner.